Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Alright, and now on to some bigger things. One thing I want to let you know about, which we've been informing the leaders, and last week we talked to all the members about this, I want to just now broaden the scope of awareness to the whole congregation. You know, our church, believe it or not, is 13 years old. If you think of it in terms of a human being, our church is kind of in full-blown puberty. We're adolescents as a church. That means that we're not fully, like, there yet. There are a lot of things that we still need to learn as a church and grow into. But we've also left the early part of our history behind, that, that sort of childhood stage where learning and growing and surviving and stabilizing are our main motivations. For the first 13 years of this church's life, God has been exceedingly faithful, and our main aim is just to hold it together and make sure that we remain a healthy church. And, and I think, by and large, God has done that for his great glory. Uh, there are a lot, and I'm going to guarantee you this is true of any church, but there are a lot of things still left to be desired at Harvest. Can I just get a collective amen for that? I mean, we're not doing everything perfectly. But I can also say that, glory to God, we are, by and large, a generally healthy church, and we've achieved a certain level of stability that has now given us the freedom to ask a different set of questions than we've been asking all along. Many of our questions till now have been, here we are, how can we do the best with what we have? How can we make the most of our present situation? How can we make sure that we survive? But now that survival seems to be a given, and God has continued to bless this church, we're asking a different set of questions. Some of the questions we're asking are, who are we as a church? Right? You know how when you're a kid, it's just about grades, but then people keep asking you, what are you going to be when you grow up? But the older you get, that stops being a question like, I want to be a fireman or I want to be a whatever. Like maybe some of you did want to be a fireman and become that. But the thing is, as you get older, that question is no longer about future fantasy. It's about what you're actually working to become. It's about finding your identity and then becoming something. And that's the kind of question we're asking now in the senior leadership of this church is what is Harvest Community Church? Put another way. I think we can look at it this way. When God had it in his heart to form this church 13 years ago, he brought like 20 of us together. I, I tell the story often. Our whole church was one small group the first year. I just remember sitting around in one apartment living room, and the whole church was gathering every week. And when he did that and birthed this church, why did he do it? What did he have in mind that someday we would do in his hands as his instrument? And that's a bold question. And it's a question we've been gradually growing into, but we're now ready to ask without any reservations or conditions. Just simply ask God, what is it you want to do with us? And we're no longer asking, how can we do it best where we are? But we're asking the bolder question, where and in what circumstances do we need to be in order to do it to the best of our ability and maximize our potential? Do you understand what, what the implications of that question are? We're saying no longer... How can we make the most of this? But how do you want us to be? If we could rewrite the whole story, throw out the old rule book and say, we are now reinventing ourselves as a church built around the solid core identity which God has given us, what does that need to look like? And what are the implications? And so your board of elders has been praying, fasting, talking about this for about 18 months. 
And we wanted to make sure that we had heard from God before we started infecting other people with a half-baked loaf of bread, if you know what I mean. And so we began asking the Lord these questions and boldly asking him for an answer. And we believe little by little he unfolded that answer to us. And it seems to us that a big part of the question is where we are and how much freedom we have to present to the world and the community around us a church in its setting that best reflects the core mission and the values and philosophy of ministry that this church embraces. Okay? Obviously, there's some practical implications of that. I'm not trying to be a dodgy politician and withhold the punchline, but the reason I don't want to just tell you what we've been hearing is because I want you to begin exploring that same set of questions. We will tell you very directly what we've been hearing, but I want to leave it to you as a congregation to begin asking the same set of questions. And here's how we're going to be doing that. For the entire um, three, first three weeks of our uh, resumed community group schedule for this year, our community groups are resuming meeting on the week of the 11th, next week. And for the first three sessions of community groups, you as a church are going to be discussing the future of this church around some central questions that I think will help shape our future. And as you do that, we're going to trust you to be expressing what you're hearing from God and what you're feeling strongly in your heart so we get a gauge of where this congregation is. Obviously, uh, where we're located is a part of that. What kind of leadership structure we have is part of that. How much freedom we have to present a church that is visible to the community is part of all that. But we want you to arrive at those, those kinds of thoughts by the same path that we took. And so that's, that's an opportunity you're going to get through all of January is to talk about it in your groups. Now, I would say this. These first three conversations in January are so important to the future of this church that that's justification enough, in my opinion, for joining a community group if you're not in one right now. If you care about where this church is headed, if you'd like to have a voice, that is going to be one of the great places for you to find that voice and share what you're feeling and hearing from the Lord. And we want to know what you're hearing from him because we believe that when the Holy Spirit is moving and he's at work, there develops a certain unity among a group of people so that we might have disparate opinions about this or that, but at some point, an amazing thing happens when the Holy Spirit is at work. We begin to agree on the big things together. I think that 2009, as a result of these discussions, is going to be a year of upheaval and change. Okay? And I'm going to just tell you right now, not everybody likes change. Not everybody likes it. Some people are going to find that change is too much for them. But I want to ask you as a congregation to begin preparing your hearts. And don't begin this year by thinking, what do you feel and think about things? But begin honestly asking God, what does he think? about Harvest Community Church and its future? What does he feel about us as a a group of people? And what are we supposed to do for him and with him? We've been praying for you for a long time, and, and the leaders have been in discussions about this for three months. We've been hearing a lot of feedback from them. We want the membership of this church and the congregation as a whole to now speak out. And so... Be excited about that. I want to just get a a, a show of hands here. How many of you are currently involved in a community group? That's a good number of you. For those who did not raise your hands, I'm not going to make you raise them now and single you up, but I want to really encourage you. This would be a really good opportunity to dive into the community group system and become part of a smaller piece of harvest where your voice is heard, your face is known, where you become a true part of this living body. And I want to commend that to you. And look forward to some really, really interesting and lively conversations. 
the first part of 2009. Uh, how many of you guys um, have started working on your little communication surveys? Some of you guys done? All right. So make sure you continue working on that. Please give us that feedback because we really, really need it so we can start working on some things with you. The other thing I wanted to let you know about is um, that starting this Sunday, today, we're going to be opening up a three-week period of open nominations for those who would serve as deacons at Harvest Community Church. We, we told many of you before that um, for a long time, we've been operating with the congregation and then the board of elders and nobody in between. We have a bunch of leaders, but we really feel like this is one of our glaring weaknesses is that we need to install an ordained, legitimate body of, of leaders who stands at the middle level. And we think that it's one of the reasons that our church is not moving forward as effectively as it could. And so we want to address that situation. And we believe that the biblical answer is to anoint deacons to serve in this church. Now, I know that we've talked about elders and, and, and we've had some uh, candidates presented to you and all that. And I think, by and large, the office of elder is one that is pretty well understood in the church. I think it'd be worth preaching on, and we'll get around to that. But what I've found in my observations is that the office of deacon is one of the most misunderstood offices in the church. I think depending on your church history and how you grew up, you probably have a pretty fixed idea of what a deacon is. If you grew up in what we call in the Asian-American world the English ministry world, that context, then probably for you the word deacon might even mean something very similar to an elder. Because a lot of English ministries who were not independent churches didn't see that they could uh, appoint elders, so they raised up deacons, which was okay for an English ministry to have, and they let them function like elders even though they weren't. And as a result, I think a lot of confusion has developed about what a deacon is and what is expected of a deacon and how they fit into the big picture of the leadership of the church. We also need to be clear, what kind of people are we looking for as you begin nominating deacons from among your fellow church members. And so I want to turn to Scripture this morning to get some clear biblical guidelines. Because you know what? Every one of us has witnessed leadership failure, haven't we? Some of us have lived it. I have. I, I've blown it as a leader before. I've blown it with some of you. Some of you have a scar that runs across the entire width of your heart because of a failure in, on my part or someone else in this church in leadership. And when someone fails in leadership, they do not fall alone. They always take some other people down with them. But we've also seen the other side of that, the beauty of when leadership is working well. And the amazing thing about leadership when it works is that the, the faithful service and sacrifice of a few can cast such a wide net and bring blessing to so many other people. And so regardless of whether it's failure or success, the one thing we can all agree on is that leadership matters. Who we appoint as leaders over this church will be a big part of deciding the future character of this church. And, and I don't know if some of you can attest to this, but I've watched growing up in the Asian church, at least, that some of the most toxic decisions the church can make is to appoint the wrong people to high positions of leadership. There are a lot of wrong reasons to appoint certain people to leadership, and we want to avoid those. And I think the best way to avoid those mistakes is to see the scriptural guidelines and follow the pattern of the word of God as it's laid out for us. And so I'd like us to uh, hang on one sec. Got my clicker. I'd like us to uh, look together at a passage of scripture that gives us the early church's approach 
for the appointment of deacons. This is when the first deacons in the world were appointed in the church. It's Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. And it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. This passage begins with some rumblings of trouble. It says that in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, or in other words, when the church was numerically growing, there arose some complaints from among the Greek-speaking Christians. These were people who were otherwise known as Gentiles, non-Jews, who from the outside of the movement had heard the gospel and believed in Christ and joined the fellowship of believers. They are the latecomers to the Christian movement, and they felt that they were getting, or at least their widows, were getting a prejudiced treatment in the daily distribution of food. Uh, In the New Living Translation, it says, there arose rumblings of discontent. In another translation, the King James, it says, there arose a murmuring. I think those words evoke a feeling of recognition among us. If you've been in church leadership at all, you know what that feels and sounds like when somehow you begin to pick up there's a rumbling of discontent or murmurings. It's these whispers, these back-channel things where you say, you know, I've heard a lot of people are saying, what do you think? And then eventually a few emails or, or pieces of gossip trickle the way upstream and the leaders hear about them. And, and the thing is, when there is discontent, and the people are, are tightly connected, it's almost impossible to contain that discontent. And so here were these Greek-speaking Christians who felt like their widows were getting less bread than everyone else or sometimes even being overlooked. And their initial observation is probably correct. Right? I don't doubt what the Greek-speaking Christians were observing in the church when they watched. I mean, how can you be mistaken about this? Look, here's a big chunk of bread for you and a little crumb for her. And you know, If, if that's happening, that's going to start getting you upset. And because it was probably an accurate observation, the more the Greek-speaking Christians thought about it, the more upset they were getting. Do you ever feel that where you see something and you checked all your your, your facts and you got it right, and the more you think about it, the more this, this is not how church should be. And the more you think about it, you start getting yourself even angrier every minute. Nothing new developing, but just the fact of it alone starts getting your heat to rise. And after a while, you begin saying, I can't contain this anymore. i got to talk it out with someone. And so you pull someone aside, and, you know, you do what the Christians do when they don't want to gossip, share prayer concerns and, and issues. And they start saying, what do you think about, you know, because I'm just really concerned, and maybe we could pray about this. Gossip, 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 gossip. And, and they begin speaking quietly at first, and then much more boldly. And after a while, the slow and quiet murmuring becomes an all-out protest, and, and it, it takes a tone of this. What the heck is going on around here? What is this? 
How can you call yourselves the church, the people of Jesus, and yet you give some widows a lot of bread and some widows no bread? What kind of place is this? And that's the kind of outcry that was coming up in the early church. It didn't take very long for complaining to affect the church because, I mean, this church is hardly a, a few years old and already this is happening. It always surprises me how quick some people are to jump to the worst conclusions. I've noticed this. It's almost like there's just two kinds of people. One kind begins with guilty until proven innocent, and the other it's innocent until proven guilty. Do you know what I'm talking about? There are some people who maybe it's just the way they grew up, but they always see the glass as half empty. And so I think this is what happened to the Greek-speaking Christians. They saw something correct. They made a correct observation But then they extended it to a very incorrect assumption. They assumed wrongly that the main reason this inequity was was seen was because there was prejudice. There was a hard-heartedness among the leaders towards some of the widows. Now, I don't know what in their past experience would have given them this impression that we have a bunch of racist apostles in the church who are singling out the Greek-speaking widows. But I I can't imagine, when I read the picture of the early church described in Acts chapter 2, that somehow this is a bigoted, racist, prejudiced bunch of people. That is not the picture of the early church that emerges at all. In fact, think about this. Their widows were being cared for by the community of believers who were in many cases selling their own property to make sure everybody's needs were met. Shouldn't that reality alone be cause for at least some benefit of the doubt, some positivity in assumption-making. But it wasn't. And, and just like it often happens, the grumblings begin because someone makes a correct observation but reaches the wrong conclusion. Do you hear that? Many people have made lots of correct observations even about this church, but in some cases I believe we have reached the wrong conclusion because we have started with the wrong assumptions or ascribed the wrong motives. And I think to the the credit of the apostles, when they first heard these grumblings, their first step was not to go, oh man, we need a racial reconciliation workshop this, this coming Saturday. We need to address this prejudice head on. Because if that were the heart of the problem, I believe that's exactly what they would have done. These apostles were not were not panty wastes who were afraid to call it like they saw it. When they saw a problem in the church, they stood up, and even if it cost them their lives, they would speak the truth. And so it's very telling to me that they completely ignored the racial prejudice part of it, which was working up the Greek-speaking Christians into this frenzy of upset and anger. And saying, you know, you think that it's about prejudice, but the real nature of the problem was not prejudice, though it could have existed at some level, but it was actually more shorthandedness. The problem was that as this church was growing in numbers, and by any indications from Acts chapter 2 and on, it numbered in the thousands a community, a collective group of Christians numbering in the thousands, meeting at dozens of different homes, that's a pretty huge enterprise. And as it was growing, there were so many new ministries that were important to the expression of Christian life. But the small group of apostles found that they could no longer manage everything. That's a pretty age-old problem, and it actually describes where our church is right now. And because this limited group of people could not do it all, a lot of things were falling through the cracks. Not simply because of hard-heartedness or prejudice, but because there just wasn't enough help to go around. They needed more leadership, and they did not have it. And so to their credit, these apostles attacked the real problem, not the one that was presenting itself. And they said, listen, here's what we need to do. We don't need racial reconciliation seminars. We need more leaders. 
And so here's what they did. They, they began attacking that problem head on, and they charged the congregation to come up with nominations for those who would lead at this other level of leadership. I think that's pretty instructive for us. And I want to point out a few things about that in the way that they set about the process of looking for leaders. First, I, I noticed that the apostles didn't just go and pick people themselves. I'm sure they were tempted to do that. If you've ever been in leadership, there's always this kind of feeling like we want to control everything because we trust ourselves. If, if you've led at any context, you know how that is. Some of you are leading families as parents, and you know the, the temptation to do everything for your kids. Let me give you a silly example. Um, when I watch my kids color a coloring book, it drives me insane because I am kind of anal. And so I'm always like, oh, can I just color that for you because they're just you know, doing this kind of thing. When I see my kids, my wife brings out the paints and stuff. I hate that kind of play because it's so messy. It's not controlled and contained. This desire to control runs very strong in, in, in many people who find themselves in positions of leadership. But to their credit, I believe this was a leading of God. They said, let's not just pick a bunch of people we think. Let's see if the Holy Spirit is actually working in this community. Let's see if there's an agreement in our judgment and the discernment of the people of God because their voice needs to be heard. They don't get to see every story. They're sitting at the, at the top levels, you know, administering the whole church, but they don't see what happens in Cousin Joe's bed, bathroom when somebody's throwing up and another person's hitting their back going, I'm with you, buddy, I'm with you. You know, that kind of little story, the in-the-trenches stories of the way one person of Christ is blessing another person. You know who gets to hear all those stories? The people who are living them, who are receiving ministry and giving ministry at the grassroots level. And so they began asking the congregation, tell us who is actually leading you right now. Tell us who are the people in this congregation who have already risen to the top and are on the top of everybody's short list of people who, when we're looking for people to lead us, it's a no-brainer. This person, this person, this person needs to be selected. Now, another thing I want you to note is they asked for seven men. But I want to expand on that a little bit because when I first read that, I thought, okay, it would be easy to think that the only gender that can play the role of deacon are men. And there are still people today who make a strong biblical case for that. But I've been doing a little bit of study because I felt like somehow that's not quite the picture that God had in mind. And so I, I, as you study the New Testament, you'll find that women actually play a remarkably prominent role. In fact, if you read in some translations that I think have rendered it more faithfully, you see a woman named Phoebe in Romans 16, and she is named as a deaconess. The word used to describe her title in the church is the exact same word used of deacon, which means that this, there are women in the church, and the way Paul wrote about Phoebe was that she was a woman of great stature in the church. She was somebody who was important to the work of the gospel. In other places, Paul mentions other women like Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4. And he calls them co-laborers along with a bunch of other men who are named as key co-laborers in the work of the gospel. The, the inference is without these women, the work would have not gone forward in the same effectiveness that it did. I look at this congregation and I think about all of the sisters that I know in this group and I say we have some very exceptional women. And I think it would be a biblical and spiritual mistake to simply cut out half of our church and say that this is only for the men. And so I feel safe biblically, theologically, extending this office to women as well as men. 
And this is not me trying to be hip or modern or countercultural. I really believe with my full conviction this is the best reading of the testimony of Scripture. Okay? And so I want to extend that to you and make you aware of this. For us at Harvest, the office of deacon is a valid office that can be held by women as well as men. And so when you're making your nominations, I would ask you not simply restrict yourselves to male nominees, unless your own conscience is so bothered by what I just said that you think the best reading of Scripture is men only. Go ahead and just nominate guys. Okay? Um, if you find it such a deal breaker, you can't even come to this church anymore. We love you. But we really feel strongly. I, I think there are so many gifted women who need to have a place at the table of the church, and we need to honor that. Does that make sense to you guys? I'm just kind of barreling forward here. Now, they also didn't want this just to become a popularity contest. And that's what a lot of leadership selection processes become, just popularity contests. And I don't mean like in high school, like who's going to be the homecoming king, but just there's a kind of simplistic way that a lot of groups think about who's going to lead us. And so they said, well, let's not just get simplistic about this. We want to give you some clear spiritual guidance on what kind of people we're looking for as you go to the congregation and pick your leaders. Like I said before at the beginning, who we appoint as leaders in this church has really far-reaching implications. I, I take the office of deacon exceedingly seriously. I, I think it's, it's going to be very important who you all select. And so pay attention, please, to some of these guidelines. The first thing I see in this text is that respect is more important than popularity. In that, in that first part in verse 3, it says, Find seven men, and we'll include women, seven people of good repute. Other translations say of, of, who are well-respected. In other words, we're not just looking for people who are well-liked and well-connected. Those things are important, and often they go hand-in-hand hand with well-respected, don't they? But we're not just looking for the people who have their hands in every social circle in the church, who know everybody and who know everything. We're not just looking for people who everybody likes to invite to all the gatherings. That, that may be very well the most respected person, but we're asking you as a starting point to think about who you genuinely respect in this church. Just because you like them does not mean that they are called to lead the church. You hear that? I hope you like them. It would be nice if the well-respected people weren't jerks, and so at least a few people actually like them. That's important. But what I'm really saying is don't just think about people who you want to somehow bless with this vote of approval and, and confidence, but to say, look, if I nominate this person, I've got to genuinely be okay coming under their authority, submitting to their, their leadership when it comes down to it. I've got to know that this is a person of real substance, that I'm not going to regret or later be embarrassed by the fact that our church promoted this person to a place of spiritual leadership. And I've got to be able to vouch for their character. I've got to be able to say with an honest heart that this person has my full support, not just in general, but for these specific reasons. I really believe this is a person who, elevated to a position of spiritual leadership, will honor God and bless this church. Now notice also the context of leadership here is spiritual leadership. We're looking for leaders in the church. And so just because a person has a certain profile and skill set and, and even experiences that make them good leaders in another arena, don't, don't, uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that that person will take all of those skills and just make them portable into the church context. That's not true. 
I've seen this proven over and over again. Some people who lead very, very capably in other settings cannot lead the church. A person might be able to run a business well, but they will also run the church into the ground. I've seen that happen again and again. And so I would call you to remember that the people we're looking for are not just leaders, but spiritual leaders. And it's in that arena. You might admire them socially. You might admire them intellectually. You might even admire them physically. I don't know what crazy reasons we have for anointing people into leadership positions. But I'll tell you this. Remember that who you're nominating is a person who will lead in the name and authority of Jesus Christ over this church. And so take that very seriously. And that might mean that there's someone you love dearly who needs to be passed over because you need to nominate somebody who you genuinely think will lead this church with spiritual maturity. That leads us to a second thing, and that is that maturity, spiritual maturity, is more important than skills. Now, I don't mean to set those things apart as like we want the most untalented people in the world, okay? So I know some of you are really wired around the whole skills and talents thing. We've got a lot of gifted people around here. Yes, we do. We absolutely do. In fact, we almost have an embarrassing glut of talent in this church. But here's what I I think the Word of God is saying. When you look at what the apostles told the congregation in the selection of their leaders, they said people who are well-respected, and then out of the next next breath, they said full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Think about this. The problem that was presenting itself was a food distribution problem. Wouldn't it make sense if talent was the first thing on the apostles' mind that they would have said, we need to find guys in the food distribution and logistics industry who can do this for us. Guys who really know how to run a program. Bam, bam, bam. Because the problem is inequitable distribution. We need to know how to measure things on the ground and blah. And yes, maybe that's one approach. But that's not the approach the apostles took. They recognized that this was a leadership shorthandedness problem, a logistical problem. But in solving that problem, they began with a spiritual qualification. What they said was that what's more important than a skill set is a certain level of spiritual maturity. A person who is full of the spirit and of wisdom. Now, this might wake some of you up. How many of you guys remember that band Alpha Omega? Raise your hand if you heard of Alpha Omega. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be at this pulpit today if it was not for the ministry of Alpha Omega. Let me tell you about this band, this gospel band. And I, I use quotes for a reason. They got booked at retreats all over the country to provide worship music and, in some cases, preaching and counseling. But mainly, they were a band. But they were a very strange band because it took absolutely zero musical ability to join. They were very, very clear on the standards of recruitment for this band. And the only thing they cared about was, is this person full of the spirit and of wisdom? Is this person a person of spiritual substance? Because if they were not... They wouldn't take them even if this person could have recorded with the Beatles. That's back in the 80s, so the Beatles, you know, still kind of fresh. I just remember watching some of my friends join this band, and I was like, you what? You got into a band? You know how many of the members of Alpha Omega, my, my younger brother, Dr. Steve included, when they joined the band, could not even play the instrument that they were supposed to be assigned to. They began taking lessons the first day of the band. I especially remember one older brother. His name was Changsu. English name was David. He was a drummer. He could not keep a beat going to save his life, but he became the drummer because that's what they needed. And he really struggled with drums. Brother wasn't good, okay? 
But you know, he had such a love for the Lord. To this day, he's serving God faithfully. It's amazing to watch what he's been doing for the Lord all these years. But I remember sometimes, you know, the song would kind of pick up, the beat would get a little complex, and you would always see Chung do this. He'd just put the drumsticks down, just raise his hand. And you know what that was? That was surrender. I give up. But it was also, I love you, Lord. What's more important than the drums is that we're worshiping Jesus right now. And I love seeing that moment. It's like, that's the way a gospel band should be put together. They were clear on what their real ministry was. I never jammed to an Alpha Omega tape while I was driving. I guarantee you that. The music sucked for the most part. But I watched that band lead hundreds of young people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the people who are pastoring in Asian American churches in Chicagoland today would not be in those positions had God not used Alpha Omega the way he did in the 80s with their ridiculously low level of musical talent, with their amazing infilling of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. I learned a lot from watching that example because I believe long term that's what builds a healthy church. It may not be what builds the most impressive organization, but I don't know that God ever called us to be an impressive organization, but always more organically, a family, a tribe, a fellowship, a bride. The words he used were living organism words. You know, they're they're about us living and moving and flowing together. That doesn't mean skills and talents are not important. Don't ever hear me say that. They're very important. But what I'm saying emphatically is that An overabundance of talent will never compensate for a deficiency in spiritual maturity. Give me a person who loves the Lord and knows nothing else, and I can teach them skills. God has done that in my ministry many, many times. I would would rather have that person and teach them how to do something than to take the wizard who can do all things and doesn't love the Lord with all their heart. You can teach skills, but you can't just inject the Spirit of God into a person with a lecture. That's about the work of God. And I'm asking you, as you discern who should be deacons at this church, to keep your eyes fixed on who already among us is living this way. You may not be impressed with their talents or their resume, but when you're around them, you know that they walk with Jesus Christ. There's a depth, a weight to them that makes you feel like you can trust what they're doing for the Lord. I hope I've... uh, Emphasize that enough, because I can't stress it enough. We're not just looking for the most talented people, but we're looking for the most spiritual people. And I believe often those two things can come hand in hand. But if you have to pick one or the other, be guided by the word of God. Those full of the spirit and of wisdom are who need to lead at Harvest Community Church. Here's the last thing. Character is more important than experience. Another one of the common mistakes that churches make when they're appointing leaders is to look around and go, well, you know, in a way, I guess we have no choice. This person has to be elected because they've been around forever. They've been around forever. That's kind of a way of saying seniority, just having been around a really long time, gives an entitlement to someone to lead. And I believe we need to dispel that idea. That's not to say that people who've been around a long time shouldn't lead. I mean, sometimes that's a really good indicator of commitment and health. But what's more important than how long they've been a part of the church is how they've been a part of the church. Do you hear me? It's not just how many years they've logged with us, but what was the quality of those years? 
What effect has that person had on your life? Here are a few ways to look at it. Has my life in any way changed for the better because of this person's influence in my life? When this person walks into a room, do they brighten or darken that room? That, to me, is exceedingly important for people who lead because I find it very hard to work long-term with wet blankets. You know what I'm talking? People who have this portable cloud, dark cloud, following them wherever they go, who are always quick to see the glass half empty, the negative Nancys. Well, I don't know. We didn't. It's very hard for me to work with people like that, which is not to say that they don't have a valid point to make, but if that's what you associate with them is they walk in a room and it just gets heavy. I'm not, I'm not so sure that's the kind of person we need to lead from in front of the church. Because I believe that God is a God of straining forward, looking ahead, which is not to neglect the failures of the past. But I'm talking about people with a countenance that lifts up and inspires. Because I realize more as I get older that leadership is not just about competence. But the most powerful aspect of leadership, I think, is the ability to inspire Information is abundant in our world today, but inspiration is in really short supply. I can tell you a lot of things you should do, but how do I breathe into a person the will or the desire to join God in it? That has a lot to do with your countenance. And so I'm going to ask you as you think about that, how has this person been? What effect do they have on the church around them? When they enter a meeting, what do they do to that meeting? How about this one? Has that person walked in grace and reconciliation or in conflict and bitterness? That's not to say the people may not have a valid point in why they're carrying around a wound, but I'm asking you honestly, how has that person worked out the difficulties relationally in, their ch- in the church? You, you can apply the same filter to, to me and the other pastors and other elders here too. How are we walking in relationship? And I think that's one of the places we really need to look. Has this person lived out the gospel of grace? Is there forgiveness? Is there moving on? Or is there conflict wherever they seem to go? And I want you to be very aware of things like that. What about this? Has this person walked as a contributor or a customer for all those years? And and that's a very honest thing that I want to point out because there are people who have been here a very long time, but the, the mark they've left is very shallow right now. And the invitation to those people is to go deeper, deeper this year, to really take it another level and say, you know, I've been kind of here for a really long time, but haven't been here. It's like the father who comes home from work and says, look, I'm home, but his mind is still at the office or on the golf course. He's buried in his den. He won't come out or he's stuck in front of the TV. He's physically there, but he's not present. See the difference there? And what we're looking for is our a person who has cast a visible presence among the people of God. Wasn't just physically taking up space, but was living actively among us. Are you following me? These are important things. And and I draw this simply from the fact that Nicolaus is mentioned as a proselyte of Antioch. You know what that means? That means he's a recent convert to Christianity from the new church that was planted in Antioch, which means he could not have been a follower of Christ for more than a couple years. A very short time. But somehow in that time, he so left his mark among the people of God that out of thousands in the church, when they needed seven leaders, this new believer had cast such a shadow over the community of believers that it was no-brainer to them collectively 
Nicholas has to be one of the seven. He has to be because of the effect he's had, the passion, the depth of character, the real maturity he's had in leading with us already, even without a title, he has to be one of the seven leaders who the elders are asking us to find. I hope that makes sense to you, that even a recent convert to Christianity, if they begin passionately and ardently walking with Christ, can leave a huge footprint in the church wherever they go. And so don't just look to the people who have been around forever. Many of those people who have been around forever are very qualified leaders. I hope they will get your vote of confidence. But also have an eye for those who are relatively new, but who have demonstrated in your life and in the lives of others that they are walking with Christ in a very real way. A couple other things I just want you to notice before we move on to something a little bit more practical about this is that afterwards, the elders were presented with the deacon candidates, and it was always the elders' authority in the end to appoint them. You see, leadership isn't just about, I'll be a leader, and you stand up. It must be legitimized. There must be a sense in which this person is anointed and installed formally to lead for us, to speak for us. And so that's what will happen, is once the leaders, the candidates are nominated, then the elders will will affirm that and will anoint them. And we will actually have an ordaining service for our deacons. If you grew up in the Korean church, you may have noticed that there was a, there's a two-tier system in the Korean church for deacons. There are the regular deacons, and then there are those anointed deacons. In Korean, what they call ansujipsa, right? And if you're, I'm sorry if you're not Korean. Just I'm trying to give you, the, the Korean-speaking folks, some point of recognition here. There were two levels, right? And so there were like, the ordained deacons are super deacons, and the regular deacons are just people who've been around long enough. We sort of got to give them a title. They're going to leave. I don't mean to be cynical, but, you know, sometimes that's the way it worked out, okay? We don't recognize that because I, don't, I think there's no biblical precedent for that system. All deacons in Scripture were ordained and given authority to lead. I believe that the office of deacon is an office of servant leadership that is empowered with enough authority that they could do it fruitfully and joyfully without going through a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. That these are empowered leaders, but it's very important to note this. A, a deacon is not an elder light, They're very distinct offices. The elders of the church are called to focus on intercessory prayer and the ministry of the word and the overall shepherding and guidance of the church. The office of deacon is to be empowered to run the ministries of the church, but not simply with a a German-like precision to the, the system and the processes, but with a spiritual discernment as well. You get that? And so that's what a deacon does. They are empowered enough to keep the engine of the church moving. They carry out or execute the directions that the elders have set for the church, and they do it with exceeding effectiveness. That is the office of deacon. And so we want to let you know that it is such a distinct calling that some people are called and gifted by God to be deacons for the rest of their lives. And that's not a statement uh, that they never quite grew into the elder position. Elder is not a rank that you grow into over time. It is a distinct calling. Just like you would never say, well, I've been a deacon forever. I should eventually become a pastor. How many of you would ever think that? See, the two callings are very different, and we want to make sure you understand deaconship at Harvest is not a stepping stone to eldership. It is a distinct office that exists for that person, for that context now. I also want to say that deaconship is more about serving with empowerment than it is about decision and policymaking. In other words, you may have a great contribution to make in the way that elders create policy and and direct the church. We need to hear that. There needs to be input. 
But if you become a deacon of the church, make no mistake, we're not asking you mainly to give us your opinion and your expertise, but your faithful service. The word deacon is, in fact, built on the Greek root word for service, ministry. And so I want to make sure you understand the word elder, presbyteros, is about shepherding. It's about oversight. But the word deacon is about servant ministry, really keeping the engine chugging along. Do you guys get that? At this point, I want to direct your attention to another insert that you've got in your bulletin. Some of you may have been already kind of thumbing through that. Would you take that out? It's a, a full sheet of paper that um, outlines the actual process. And I want to go through that a little bit with you here. I just want to point out a couple of things. The open nomination period for, for deacons is going to be from this Sunday through Sunday, January 25th. That will give you three full weeks to write out your nominations. Okay? Please keep in mind that both men and women are viable candidates for this office. Here's another thing I want to make sure you understand. We're not looking for casual, light-hearted nominations like, I nominate my friend Willie, and I nominate my friend Joe, and you know, I second him. Ah. You know, like, it's not going to be that easy to nominate somebody. Otherwise, we'll have 8,000 nominations in a church of 200. I mean, we're not just looking for, oh, I like you, so dude, I'm going to nominate you. So I've, I've seen in some churches, it, it almost becomes a joke. I'm going to nominate you. You're going to get it. <laughs> you better not. I'm going to nominate you back. None of that, okay? We're not going to have any of that. I believe that deaconship is a very serious office, and I'm asking you to give it its proper weight and seriousness. And I, I don't believe it should be a casual thing. When you say someone can lead as a deacon at this church, you better have a reason to say that. Okay? And we want to hear that reason. Because we don't have any votes or elections for these offices, it's important that you make your voice heard because your nominations are going to be carefully reviewed, prayerfully poured over by the elders to see what is the church really saying about this person. And if you inspired a fortune cookie versus three paragraphs about, man, I really believe this person should lead, that's going to weigh heavily on our opinion. And so I'm going to ask you, if you write a nomination for someone, it must be in writing, and it must be non-anonymous. We don't want any drive-by nominations, but we want to know who you are and what it is you're saying about this person. Okay, that's very important to us. So please submit your nominations in writing. We've given you a sample here, and this to me is the bare-bones, smallest nomination I think would pass muster. I want you to review that and get an idea of the depth we're looking for so that you're telling us the story of why this person in your eyes is so esteemed that they can lead at this level in our church. Does that make sense to you? Now, the way we're going to do it is for a person to become a formal candidate for deacon, they must have received a minimum of three written nominations from the congregation affirming their choice, the candidacy. And those three must not come from a relative or from themselves. So if you're already nudging your wife, you better write a good one. We'll take it. We'd love to hear what the spouse has to say and what your four children have to say. But, you know, we would also really like to hear from others outside your immediate family what mark you've left on their lives. Okay? And please, uh, people who would be leaders, don't jockey for position or campaign in, in some quiet, indirect way. Let the church speak. Let the ministry you've already had among the people be what leads the Holy Spirit to direct us. Let's let the church affirm for us. In other words, this is not about 
elections or jockeying for position. It's about the collective affirmation of the church that these are our leaders already. Let us now give them the title which they have earned. God is already using them. Does that make sense to you? Don't assume that anybody who is already in a leadership position is a deacon or something. Everybody is fair game who is not an elder can be nominated to deaconship. If they're not on staff and they're not an elder, they are fair game. The only qualifications we give you is they should have been a member of the church for at least one year. Okay? That way they're not just trying to acclimate to what this is about. They understand some, some depth about the DNA of this church and what we value and where we're headed. Okay? And so under those guidelines, please begin submitting written nominations through email or through snail mail, and we've given you both ways to do that on the bottom here. Okay? If you want some more biblical guidance, please have a look at Acts chapter 6, 1 through 6 again, and also you can consult 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 for some biblical guidelines on how to do this. Right? Um, after the people have been after the, the, the people have been nominated and those with three nominations or more have been identified, those will be the candidates. We will then, as a board of elders, ask them, do you accept the nomination? Because it's going to be a pretty costly undertaking in terms of time and energy and resources. We want to make sure they're willing to do this. If they accept the nomination, then they move on to the next phase in which we open up a two-week period for open feedback. Just because three people in the church nominated someone doesn't mean that that Everybody has spoken. So once we know who the candidates are, we want to hear your votes of confidence as well as if you have an issue that you're concerned about this particular individual, that would be the time to voice your, your concern. Right? And once that period is closed and we have, we have a, a group of qualified candidates, the Board of Elders will then ordain them in a special service with all of you present. We're going to ordain them and install them as deacons of the church. Freshman deacons will then enter a 15-hour orientation and training program where we just get them up to speed on everything and define their, their work and all that and give a little bit more training uh, and prayer together. Okay? And then the rest is history. We've been still discussing at, at, at the board level what, what uh, the term limit ought to be, and we're doing the same thing for um, elders, what kind of cycle, rhythmic cycle of working and then break and sabbatical and that kind of thing that needs to be there. And most likely it would be a two- to three-year commitment at which point there will be opportunities for renewing the commitment to that service. All right? And so please keep that in mind, and I'll send out email reminders every couple days or so. I hope just to say we need your nominations. But please do not be negligent in this. We need to hear from you in the next three weeks. Okay? Okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you. You know, many of you lead already at some context in your life, don't you, at work? in your family, in some other organization. And so you know how costly leadership is. I think for that reason, not a lot of people are willing to lead in more than one context. Many people have that, and understandably, they have that heart that says, look, I'm already burnt out leading my company, my work. I don't have anything left at the end of the week. I just can't do it right now. And I understand that. And so there are a few who are really willing to step up and lead in more than one context in their life. And that is a very costly undertaking. And so I encourage you who are leaders and who will be deacons, to say that because you're willing to say yes to the calling of God, you are very precious to the Lord and precious to the people of God. We're really indebted to those who will step up because I know how hard it is. And I'm always reminding our staff, work hard, guys. Let's, let's give the full 40 hours a week of best effort because our lay leaders are putting in 40 to 50-hour weeks, 
And they're still leading our church on top of all that. Let's join them in that. And I want you to know that if you're going to step up and become a deacon of this church, you'll have our gratitude. And we know that that will be, for many of you, a huge step in going deeper with the Lord this year. I want to thank you for being willing in advance to take that next step in your life and lead us. Why don't we uh, do this? I can't believe it's only 11.05. That's so good. Um, let's spend a few minutes then. And here's how I'd like you to do it. I'd like you to just spend some time just in your rows, if you can, just kind of hear each other in groups of four. So just begin praying for our church. And I want you to pray about two things. One is the future of Harvest in general as we're talking about some very um, consequential things this month. Pray that God would speak to us and unite us as a church. And the second thing I'd ask you to pray for is let the Holy Spirit guide us to find the right people to be deacons at this church. We can trust the Lord to do that. So if you can, just if, if, if it's too hard to do it in groups of three and four, just do it with the person right next to you if you want. But let's pray together as a church and with one another for the next five minutes or so. And I'm going to invite the praise team in just a few minutes to start making their way up and close us with another worship set. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge together that this is your church. It always has been. It always will be. And as we seek new leaders and new directions, help us never to run ahead of you and your Holy Spirit. Let there arise among us that beautiful unity, that agreement of spirit, whenever the body of Christ is submitting to the head who is Christ. We pray now that you would settle upon each of our minds and hearts, that we would think your thoughts and feel your feelings about all things. And guard all that has been good and pure and healthy about this church through all the change that is sure to come. By your great strength, preserve what has been good and what has honored you. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. Now come lead us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.